Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, doing? Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession, and gems of wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad you're here. I've only met Liz once or twice, and mostly in passing. She is a very impressive woman. We hold some similar thoughts about accents and stories, although I think she is way more strict. Her story is captivating in the way someone who is a natural teller of tales can be relaxed, confident, just letting the story speak for itself. In this time of, well, 2020, it was recorded socially distanced, with Liz and Bally Eamon and me in New London, New Hampshire, recorded over StreamYard. There was a bit of an echo, so if you think you hear the Irish equivalent to the Loch Ness Monster, it's just me echoing slightly. Sorry about that. Tea and biscuits, a little Irish history, and what really matters in telling a story. Please welcome Liz Weir. Well, first of all, thanks so much for doing this, Liz. I really, really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for a while, so I'm Good. excited. <laughs> so, Liz, um, you just you just told me that you have been confined to your barracks of you've been confined to yeah. your barracks of Bally Amen, and you yeah. took off last night. <laughs> I did. I went to a hotel about thirty minutes away. And I got a good deal on it uh, from the manager's friend. And it was just lovely to be in a different place and to eat a meal, being served a meal. And, you know, it was lovely. Just nice. Just a change of... I love my home, but yeah. I'm used to being away. I could be away maybe a week a month, you know, and yeah. it's very weird for me. I mean, many months, 15th of March was the last gig I did out. Well, wow, that's a long time. I've actually got one this afternoon. Live, I mean, with real people. Yeah, with or real online. people. Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've normally... been doing loads, yeah, loads of stuff online, but not with real people. So I did listen to the interview with uh, another storyteller regarding your bio that you've written. Is it out yet? When is your biography? No, out? no, oh no, no. It's just it's at the edit stage at the minute. No, no. It'll so take a while before it's out. Okay, all right. Um, but I did discover that your dad was a soldier, and I was. Was he? He's Irish, I take it. He was born in Ireland, but he would describe himself as he would have described himself as British. Oh, That's okay. the dilemma of Northern Ireland, you see. Yeah, yeah. And your mum's from Kent, right? Yeah, Gravesend. Yeah. Nice. How many siblings do you have? Um, well, there were five of us, but there's only one other left. My brother Sean was eighty last month, so just two of us left. That's right, because you said that they're a lot older than you, and that you're yeah, almost I was the baby. <laughs> yeah, the the baby that was almost like um, an only child. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, spoiled only child. That was me. <laughs> and you describe yourself as, or I, I get an an amnivert, an introvert. I'm an introvert. But you like being on stage, though, right? I don't like it. It's what I do. It's uh, what I do. It's what I do. Yeah. So tell me what it was like growing up in your family with lots of very much older brothers and sisters. 
Well, they mostly weren't there. You see, my brother was in the Air Force when I was born, so he was away. My sister got engaged and was married when I was a baby, so they weren't there. So there were just um, my one brother lived next door with people who had no children. Don't ask me why, but he lived next door. So they're really, I was just like an only child. My brother Keith was away at work. He was, he would have been maybe, what age was he? Maybe 18 when I was born. So, you know. Yeah, it was just like being an only child. So I, my mother was a traditional stay-at-home mum until my dad died when I was 15. Um, so I had a very idyllic childhood. Where we lived at the time was considered to be in the country. It's all built up now, but I spent my days roaming forests. I had four boys who were my best friends, and I climbed trees and rode horses, and I was out and about all the time. My the only the only difference, the only thing that influenced my later life was that Daddy took out concert parties. Um, it was pre-TV. There'd be a singer, a musician, dancers, and I'd be pushed out onto the stage in a city out dress, bubble to sing. My brother played the piano, so it was homegrown entertainment, which people loved in those days. Who knew I'd be doing that now? I know, right? Shy, you know, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. Anyway. And um, you, your dad was a tenor, right? Didn't, didn't you he had sing? a lovely tenor voice, yeah. He had a lovely voice. He used to sing things like, if I can help somebody as they pass along, then my living will not be in vain, or, or the holy city, or those sort of things, you know? Oh, Very nice. nice. It was nice. That's but he was the MC, he'd crack jokes. He kept the thing going. And funny, <clears throat> excuse me, funnily enough, I MC a lot now. Oh, you do? Oh, a lot. Do you find that hard? I love MC. Love it. Yeah. Sure. I, I host my Saturday night events with like 80 people. I enjoy yeah. it. Enjoy it very much. And Just recorded like my nine intros for Timpanogos. So. so we'll be MCing together. I wish it was in person. That would be much more fun. Yeah, that would be good. I love Timpanogos. I've been there twice and I really enjoyed it. It's a place where they really care about their storytellers. They look after storytellers better there than any other festival. You say that you're you're an introvert and yet you also claimed that you were vaccinated with a gramophone needle <laughs> yeah i talk i talk i talk a lot of people don't even know what a gramophone needle is these days i have to explain that to some people but no i've we've always been talkers in our family we talk it's what we do it was the days when you sat around a, a dinner table and you talked yeah and, uh, so i've never been short of conversation well, that's good but I, I like to choose who i talk to and when i talk to them you know well i'm honored that you're talking to me then <laughs> <laughs> So who who do you think was your biggest influence when you were growing up? Um, probably my mum. Yeah. She had a very sort of bright, breezy outlook on life. She, even, she lived till she was 92. And she always had a smile on her face. And I like to try and emulate that, you know, though I have down days as well. But no, my mum was, she was really, a, she had a lot of energy and I like, I have a lot of energy. My father though, probably am in denial because I am very like him too, complete control freak and did everything <laughs> 100 miles an hour. So yeah, both of them probably influenced me. Well, that's a good combination, like the control Thanks. freak and, you know, wanting to. Yeah, it helps if you're a festival organizer, it helps to be a control freak. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah it does. Were there any storytellers in your family? But you see, what is a storyteller? In Ireland, oh, they storytell yeah. people and they say, what's that? I mean, everybody in our family talked and we always had, it was full of stories. There was no such thing as a storyteller. I mean, in the Irish tradition, there'd have been the Shanachie, particularly from the Irish language tradition, but 
says, far from that, I was reared. You know, you wouldn't ever have heard somebody being called a storyteller. Right. Maybe uh, maybe latterly the late Eamon Kelly would have been known for being on TV as a storyteller, but no, there wasn't anything. My mom had, they were full of stories. I grew up listening to their adventures in India and Palestine and crossing the, crossing the line, crossing the equator. Those are stories, but I didn't grow up listening to Irish traditional stories uh, because at that time in Northern Ireland, if you went to a state school, it was very British education. You didn't learn much about Irish history even. It's different now, but in those days, you know, my mummy would have read a lot and would have read a lot of stories to me, but there was no such thing as growing up reading all about Cúhalan or Finn McCool. That wasn't yeah. part of my background at all. Now, is that because you were raised as a Protestant? Yeah, well, I think probably more so. They'd be more interested in Celtic mythology in um, probably in a Catholic school, you'd have learned more about Irish history, Irish mythology, and so on. And it's just that mum was from England. She wouldn't right, have known right, that right. stuff anyway. And um, she was the one who was at home with me all the time. So it really wasn't until I went out and started to read for myself and met people and talked to them. And, you know, we did more about that. But there wasn't even, we weren't even taught a lot about Irish history. It seemed weird. I can give you all Henry VIII's wives and I can tell you, <laughs> dates of battles and so on but I mean we it was only when 1998 I did a lot of work about the 1798 rebellion in Ireland or the rising it was called we weren't even taught about what happened around this local area so I, I find that my aim in life since then is to make sure everybody knows everything you know yeah. and history isn't suppressed but I mean a lot of a lot of the Catholic people wouldn't have learned about Presbyterian influences in the 1798 rebellion so it just depends. It's a stroke of luck where you're born, and it's a chance, really. Yeah, I think that the uh, you know growing up on the in England and having the the, the British English history as opposed to mm. the Irish history, it's like you know we weren't taught much about that, and it wasn't until the troubles happened mm -hmm. um, that we started to realise, well, hang on, what's going on over here? And at first, there was all this and hate towards the the IRA. <laughs> because of what they were doing and then there was you know people in the states funding them and and, mm -hmm. and then there was also you know i started to ask questions about it. it was like well what makes these people so angry that they have to you know i mean my mum grew up in birmingham um mm. and we have family in birmingham still you know so when the you know the birmingham bombings mm -hmm. happened yeah. yeah it was kind of like well hang on what why are they so angry what's 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 making them be like this and then you start getting the TV shows coming out and, you know, some of the films later on in the 80s. And it was just like, wow, this, you know, it really is a double-edged sword. And, mm -hmm. and you grew up, you, you were working in a library in the 1970s. Yeah, I was children's, yeah, yeah. I went up to, I went up to Queen's University in Belfast in August, in September 69, which is when the troubles broke out. So I was in Belfast for three years. And then I went back to be children's librarian um, in 1976. So I was there um, in 1976 right through to 1990. So I was looking after all the children's libraries in the city. So that was quite a, an education for me. Yeah. Now, did the libraries, um, I know that the, there, were, there was a great divide between the Catholics and the Protestants. And I don't really want to like get into the whole political thing. But as a library, were you serving both? both oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. So you really got I mean, a mix. The library service is a neutral venue, but our libraries were in different areas. Some libraries were in Catholic areas and some mm -hmm. libraries were in Protestant areas. 
and mostly Protestants worked in Protestant libraries and Catholic worked in Catholic libraries. Um, I was charged with, well, one of the things I did was do a summer storytelling program and I recruited young people to go out and share stories, but I recruited them on the basis that they could be sent anywhere. And it was quite an education for some of them. <laughs> I bet. And that was, that was pretty ballsy to do that. Well, do you know, I didn't lose any of them. And uh, they've done very well out of it in terms of experience. And I learned a great deal. I mean, I was green as grass coming from my background uh -huh. to go up to the Falls Road or Divis or somewhere that I'd only heard about in the news. You know, but if you treat people with respect, they tend to treat you with respect, you know. Yeah. I, totally I mean, agree. different. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been reckless. I mean, I wouldn't have sent any of the guys into an area late at night or something. But people right. knew we were from the library service. That was almost like a ticket in. Oh, you're from the library. Come on ahead. Are you the storytellers? Are you the story readers? I'd say because we were using picture books a lot at that time. You know. Yeah. Sharing stories through picture books quite traditional. So, how old were these young people that you were working with sending into these areas? Um, mostly, they were students. So they're mostly eighteen to. 21 something like that and i'd interview them say do you know the city they'd say we know the university area and i'd say well you're going to be going to some other parts and uh <laughs> but you mean one of them's a film director now one of them's a barrister queen's council a couple of them were principals of schools they went on because they were the sort of people they were they were adventurous and they were independent and they were i think it was a great education for them I would imagine so, because it would have given them a, a much broader outlook on life oh, and also yeah. to see what other, other folks are suffering with, you know. Mm. And, and I mean, we were in the most deprived areas of the city. You know, many of these young people grown up in nice middle-class families. Mummy or daddy had maybe been teachers, and we were going into, like any city, like Birmingham, London, you know, the conditions of some of those apartment complexes were really bad, you know, really yeah. bad conditions, and that was part of the whole basis for the troubles that some people had nothing very deprived unemployment was rife and so on but people love stories no matter what age they are no matter where they live you know it's people true. love stories yeah. true so how did you get into you know becoming yeah. a shanty <laughs> um well when i went to work in libraries part of my training in the youth library service was to tell stories to children through picture books mm -hmm. and i mean i remember the book shaking me shaking but the strange thing was the children responded really well to it. And so I was doing more and more of that. That was part of what a librarian does is share stories. And I met my first American storyteller, Bob Gash, somewhere about 1983 or four. And he told me that in America, there's this place called Jonesboro and a storytelling was starting up. So I wrote to, I wrote to Jonesboro and I, they had a magazine called The Yarn Spinner. And I sent an article about a Belfast summer and I started telling stories without books and I noticed that was much better because you, you had much more contact. And I met storytellers like Grace Hallworth, who's still going strong in her 90s. I'd heard about librarian storytellers like Eileen Caldwell. And so that's how I got into it. And then about mid-80s, I started an adult storytelling um, monthly session. And uh, one of those sessions is still running now, thir well, 31 years later, Tully Carnet started. 31 years ago um so a wonderful thing and it just grew and grew and grew we ran i founded a festival the ulster storytelling festival that ran for 21 years i directed the northwest storytelling festival for seven years i've been on the committee of cape clear 
what are we now 26 years old so yeah it just grew just grew wow now so why did you choose folk and fairy tales because it sounds like from what you said sorry as opposed to what as opposed to what doing the personal family stories i i'm Nobody in Ireland tells me, you know this. this I do, but Americans no, don't. No, they don't. They don't. I mean, if we tell our family stories to ourselves, nobody's really that interested in other people's family stories. And why would you not tell folk and fairy tales? We have one of the richest collections oh, of yeah. folk tales in the world. I mean, the UCD in Dublin has this huge folklore collection. Um, it would, would never enter my head to tell family stories on a stage. Never would. I've I've won. I've won that um, about my family. And obviously, if I'm writing this family, I'm writing my my memoir, I'll be telling family stories. But you know, and I know that unless you're really skilled at crafting personal stories, it can be a wee bit self-indulgent. I think um, was it the wonderful Dan Ketting who said some of those stories. If you want somebody to listen to them, you pay them and you lie on a couch. Yeah. You know, right. um, it, I mean, I've been at some horrendous sessions where, like, my daughter and I were sort of head in our hands saying, we really don't want to hear this, you know. So done well, as you know, Simon, done well, personal storytelling. It's wonderful. But often it isn't done well. I mean, these wonderful folk tales are sitting there just waiting for somebody to breathe life into them. Mm-hmm. People are so hung up on whose story is it, who does it belong to. You, there's so many versions of stories there. You need to do the work. You need to go out and find the stories and craft them and tell them. And I think a lot of people think you just take a story and just retell it without any work whatsoever. Um, so anyway, what drew me to folk and fairy tales? I love wonder tales. I love magic. I don't like fantasy, by the way, but I love magical. I love ghosts, fairy tales, that sort of thing. So that's what drew me to it. You can, I believe you should only tell a story that you love. And yeah. those are stories that I love. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, the audience, especially if you're working with kids a lot, which, you know, I think we both do, um, kids will spot it a mile away if you don't like the story. And, and you'll lose them faster than you could, you know, mm-hmm. lose a rabbit that's, you know, <laughs> or a frog yeah. that you've got in your hands. Yeah, yeah. So... You also believe that storytelling is very much about community and you like to bring music and poetry as well as stories mm. into a place. You want to tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I mean, if you're going to a straight storytelling evening, it's storytelling, you sit there, you have to bring your audience with you. Mm-hmm. You need to develop audiences. In Ireland, music, stories, poetry, it's all combined. And so at my online sessions, I mean, you can have everything from somebody playing a tune and a fiddle to somebody sharing a story. And when it's community-based work, often I'll go out and work with a musician, for example. Um, so it just depends. I mean, even when I'm telling to children, I will put in songs and rhymes and tunes. But the whole community thing, a lot of my work is encouraging other people to share stories. And that would be where personal storytelling would take place. But those people are not going to stand on the stage and tell those stories. But within the safe space, I've done lots of projects looking at hard stories from during our troubles here. Mm. And people, you have to be very sensitive to those stories. I can't go out and rehash what they told me, you know. I've been given permission to share some of those stories. But again, 
it's a different kind of work. It's more interpersonal. It's more what they call applied storytelling, working with a community group, working with a women's group. And I've worked with, you name it, you know, people with mental health problems. Um, I've got an online group of people suffering from dementia or living with dementia. That's going very well online, I have to tell you. Wouldn't have believed it would go so well online because the people are safe and secure in their own homes. You know, they're not out of their own yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's amazing. <clears throat> so do you think that... Um, I, I read that you've done a lot of work with people with dementia. Is, is this something that... Um, do you think stories really helps them? Well, um, s- slows the process down? Well... <laughs> It's not a magic wand, you know, but well, know there, are certainly, there are certainly um, examples of, well, loads of examples of like, sharing a story. One story prompts another. Mm-hmm. Somebody said it should have a my gravestone provoker of stories because I tell a story to get a story back. And once people have other people interested in their stories, it gives them a bit of a boost. And so music works so very well with people with dementia. I mean, it, the lyrics are still back there and they can bring them out and it actually helps their self-esteem when they're sometimes their relatives are really surprised at what they can remember. So I do think that we should be doing a lot more of intergenerational storytelling. I'm sitting with money for a project that I can't do at the moment, uh, working with preschool children and people with dementia together. And those two groups work so well together because all the older people remember all their nursery rhymes, all their little songs, and so they can all have that same shared experience. It's so moving to watch. It's fantastic. I need to send you a book about, um, there's the, you, you know what letterboxing is, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So over here, it became called questing. Um, and in, in New England, in, the, um, in Vermont, New Hampshire, a program was created and it was picked up and, and really expanded by this guy called Steve Glazer. He's a good friend of mine, and he does these uh, treasure hunts, which are like mm-hmm. letterboxing, but they're done in local communities. And so what he and, and eventually I did when I started working with them was we were going to schools, and we would take them to places like graveyards. we take them you know, through a village, and then we go to the historical society, and we in, have the kids interview the elders. And mm-hmm. so there would be moving clues and teaching clues and historical clues um, that would lead you through this place. I mean, mm-hmm. it's place-based education basically, but it's also it's also social studies, it's also history and it's geography. Um, and then the kids would, like I said, they would interview the elders and all those things that they would learn from the elders would be put into the clues. And then they would do a presentation at the end and some of the elders would tell the stories. And it gave right. a lot of the kids a much deeper sense of place and belonging because they would learn you know, from the historical society that X, Y, Z, you know, like Simmons street, for example, that Mm -hmm. there's a kid in that class that is related to that Simmons who the street is named after. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing how well that builds community. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really cool. Well, these little ones, you know, they're just at the beginning of going into preschool. I mean, they're three and a half years of age and, you know they'll be learning Humpty Dumpty, and but all the old people join in. It's gorgeous. I brought my teddy bear in one day, and all of a sudden, an old lady who was showing no interest, no response, she was sitting catatonic. All of a sudden, started saying, "Me and my teddy bear." I hadn't sung that for like fifty years. I remembered all the words, and then we taught it to the children. Like, 
the staff were saying the quote that I've used in my book was that the staff said you've made our clients feel needed, not needy. I think that's a great thing. Oh, needed, oh, not needy. I like that. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. So what's the favorite part of your job? What lights up your eyes? What gets you what gets you juiced up in the morning when you're actually traveling around doing your um, work? That's the problem. What gets it is the interaction with people. The yeah. interaction eye to eye, mind to mind, heart to heart, as Duncan would say, Duncan Williamson used to say that. Um, the actual communication with people and the immediate response, because you know, when you're online, there's this delay sometimes. You can't read the people so well. Um, that's what I miss, and I'm, I miss it dreadful. It's terrible, but I'm doing the best I can. Like many other storytellers, we're doing the best we can. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's the most important part of the work that you do? Do you think listening is the most important part? Listening because most people think storytellers have to talk. Actually, they have to listen because, especially with older folk, if you jump right in, they'll stop talking. Whereas you just have to sit there and listen, which for me is very hard, but I do it. Um, so I think listening is the most important. Also, keeping yourself fresh, not getting stale. But I mean, the best thing about my job really is that every day is different. That's what's so hard about what we're in at the minute. I'd be going to different places every day, meeting different. One day I'd be with preschool, next day I'd be with elder care, next day I might be with a women's institute, next day I might be with a group of farmers. You know, every day was different. Whereas these days, what day of the week is it? What? How many Zoom calls have I got today? Very different. What, what do you think is the most unexpected work that you've done? And what drew you to it? Mm. Well, the work in prisons was, I suppose, I didn't know what to expect when I first went in. That's a long time since I first, I first went into prisons to work with what they call ODCs, which are ordinary decent criminals. That's your, your housebreakers, your burgers and so on um ordinary decent uh, criminals ODCs, yeah, <laughs> ODCs. Uh, whereas then of course it being northern ireland i went to work with political prisoners who didn't consider themselves to be terrorists but freedom fighters and so going into you know the prisons were segregated everything tends to be segregated here so i'd be going into an ira wing you know catholic nationalist I'd be going into loyalist wing, Protestant, British. Um, you never knew what you were, well, you knew when you heard what type of prisoner it was, what side they were on, but you never knew how they were going to respond. But I was treated with the utmost uh, respect. And I can go anywhere now. A lot of these men are out and in Parliament, so I know a lot of those people. And I met them years and years ago when they were prisoners, you know. So that's been very unexpected and very unusual work, I suppose. So when did you sorry, a lot of storytellers work in prisons, but it was a different type of prison. Most of the men I was working with wouldn't have been in prison had we been living in a normal society. Right. So how old were you when you went into the prisons and started working there? Hmm. You don't mind me asking. No, I don't originally in my thirties, then the Good Friday Agreement happened in oh. uh, nineteen ninety-eight. I was doing a lot of work once the peace agreement was signed. The prisoners are all going to get out. We knew that. Um, yeah, which is, I'd love to know how people in America would react to that. If people who were in jail for murder or bombings, all of a sudden one day, doors are open and out they go, you know. But we knew that people were getting out. So these men, 
and it was mostly men I worked with. They would be fathers and grandfathers that, you know, part of it was getting them to share stories with their children or grandchildren. Part of it was just integrating them into society again. Really bright, smart guys, you know, and as I say, I find that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of these political prisoners, they, you know, they weren't thugs. And I don't think a lot of people realize that they're just, well, they're bombers and killers and, you know, they must be horrible people, but they weren't. They they had a cause that they really believed in and it was, you know, on either side. Yeah, um, I mean, my was... father was a soldier. My right. father got paid to go out and do that. They considered that they were soldiers as well. I'm not condoning it, but I can understand it. Yeah, right. No, I feel that, yeah, I totally agree with you there. What's the most rewarding work that you've done? Either collectively, because I know you've done a lot of work with other, you know, like musicians. Your last CD had a lot of, I can't, what is it, MLV? Was that the name of the group or M MCV or something? Uh, I did all for the Dead Man's Penny, which was with a, um, the Mavron Quartet. I did a, a CD with them, it was String Quartet. Mm -hmm. And I did one with a fiddle player, Kira Mahond. The most rewarding, hmm. I don't know, I just love working. Well, I worked with a group of adults who'd all been in special care for years. Um, we did a project with them called Blue Horizons. And it was actually, I was facilitating them to tell some of their stories and memories. That was a lovely project. I love that magnificent six, as I called them. But again, that, that sort of work can't be rushed must have taken over a year to put together a little book of their stories, you know, and um, I love doing that. I love, I love giving voice to people who wouldn't normally have a voice, whose stories wouldn't normally be heard. And that's very different from stage work. I mean, people, people call themselves performance storytellers. I'd love to know what that means, actually. And I've, I've asked some good friends who call themselves that, what do you mean by that? Because every time I go out to share a story, it's performance, whether you're sitting with six people. I mean, I came back from Jonesboro, 1996. I don't know, hundreds of people in each tent. And I came home to a session with six people sitting around me and asked me which one I like best. Well, they're both equally good. I wouldn't say because you've numbers makes it a better experience. Yeah. So, yeah, don't get me started on performance storytelling. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, t I totally agree with you. I mean, the first time I was um, in front of like five people, I was absolutely scared witless Yeah. because it's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? There's, there's only five and two of them are my own kids, you know, uh, you, what can't am I gonna... you can't hide when there's only five people, you know, no, you can't. And, and then I, you know, I did it like two or three of those um, over a space of two or three years. And I, I suddenly realized it was like, well, you don't have to work quite so hard, actually. Instead of working harder, pull back and just chill with them and tell them the story. Yeah, and that's all you need to do. And it's, mm -hmm. and it really is. It's a very different, you know, we've both been to Jonesboro and to, you know, the tents are like a thousand, twelve hundred, you know, people, they're big tents. Um, but the buzz and the energy from that is so different. You know, it's like comparing pizza to a Mexican food, if you like both of them, you mm -hmm. know. Different energy. I mean, obviously, that's high energy. If you're going to try and keep those people with you, mm -hmm. high energy stuff, you have to get them going. But you see, the audience is with you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people say they clap at the opening of an envelope, but, you know, that audience is there to appreciate the quality of the storytellers who have been chosen to come 
standing ovations. I have to really warn American storytellers come over here. You aren't going to get a standing ovation, no matter how good you are. People are going to clap politely and just like suck it up because yeah. that's the way it is. You don't have to stand and whoop and Dolly and I have talked about this. Like people here don't whoop and cheer. They just don't do that. They clap politely and they're every bit as genuine and. You know, I remember Jim May sitting in, in uh, the barn at uh, the Austro-American Folk Park Festival and there was like three people around him. And that's how it was. And, you know, when you and he was fantastic with them because he's used to talking to community people. But for some American storytellers who used to going into a packed hall with hundreds and hundreds of people, it's very different. It's very different. And we just have to get used to that, you know. And um I think people really enjoy it because the audiences here are warm, they're friendly, but they aren't going to whip and cheer. No yeah, way. I think people in the uh, in New England area are, are somewhat similar to that type of people. I mean, they they'll you know they'll clap and they'll politely say, "Yeah, that was really good," and and you know you might get someone coming up to you at the end of a, a session and say, "You know, thanks for telling that story because yeah. blah 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 blah." Um, but I always always go back to um, a story about Mark Twain who was performing some, I don't know if it was in Boston or somewhere or, or in New Hampshire somewhere. And he thought he died, right? He thought he just, you know, the audience was nothing. And as he was standing out front, there were two fellows around just around the corner from him. And he, he overheard them saying, well, that fellow was right funny. I was so funny. I almost laughed out loud. <laughs> but I mean, that's the way it is. And right. you an audience sometimes and you're trying to read them and you think i'm dying here and then they'll come up and tell you how much they enjoyed it so you know it's it's just different folks yeah. um and and I, I i sort of like that genuineness really it's really nice i'm not saying the other people aren't genuine but the people that pay money and buy tickets to go to jonesboro they're storytelling fans that's what they yeah. do they yeah. know the storytellers they like they know what they want whereas i remember being at a festival at shall be nameless and uh <laughs> I tried a new venue and we had the cream of American storytellers there and I was there too. And like we all just about died that night. I'm not gonna name names, but we all come out with our knuckles dragging on the ground. But it was sort of a mismatch because they'd never held an event there. I don't know what the people there the people thought they were coming to a comedy night, you know. Ah, okay. Also here's a wee thing and I don't know about you, but it really irritates me when somebody tells me what a good time I'm going to have. As an MC, never, ever, ever tell anybody how much they're going to enjoy themselves. Because if somebody says that to me, I think, you think, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, I, it, it's it's really interesting the difference between an American audience and a British audience. Um, very, very different. Very, very different. And that's why people need to get out and travel and see. Mm -hmm. And see what it's like we always say in northern ireland everybody needs to get out of northern ireland but you know people here wouldn't believe the reception that i even get when i go to america it's like blows my mind it's so wonderful because we're just not like that here we're not like that could you just describe... around i've been around i've been to 29 states so i suppose yeah. i know a lot of people you do know a lot of people and and i think as somebody that's you know that does the work that you do um to the to the extent that you do it you know american storytellers have heard about you you know that mm -hmm. and having an mbe 
you know, doesn't, you know, <laughs> that helps. Yeah, well, well, just me and the hat, you know, me and the hat and the curtsy, you know, people remember that. But uh, I'm not big into royalty and pageantry, but as far as storytelling is concerned, I mean, Taffy got one, I've got one. Peg Armstrong, the lady who founded Tully Carnet Yarn Spinner, she got one years ago. So, you know, it's a pretty good record for storytelling. So it I quite yeah. enjoyed that, and that was great. But when I tell people they didn't even give you a cup of tea all day there, you know, so much for the palace, you don't even get a cup of tea, <laughs> which in Ireland is the height, the height of rudeness not to offer somebody a cup of tea. I know we have um, we've had some construction guys come in, and you know it's the same. You know, my mum brought me up the same way. It's like you know, painters come in, you give them a cup of tea, and you, you know, plate of biscuits, you know, cookies. Yeah. And and um, you know, you, these guys that come in and you talk to them, and they're like. I'm all right. And they look at you as if you're mad. <laughs> well, here's a big thing. Here's a big difference. And ask anybody else, Jerry and Barry, the story crafters. When, when we go into a school here, you get offered tea, coffee, biscuits, lunch. And I've been in schools in America. They don't even ask you, as they say here, have you a mouth on you? I <laughs> never get offered coffee. It's just crazy. I just, it's the height of rudeness, the height of rudeness here not to offer somebody a cup of tea or coffee or a lot of people, my friends don't drink tea and coffee, juice, water, something. Yeah. And you also never offer it, as they say in their hand, you always have to offer a biscuit with it or a piece of cake with it or something with it. So we have our, our guest storytellers put on pounds when they come here. <laughs> I can get that totally. How, how would you describe your creative process? How do you pick out the stories that you tell and what do you do with them once you've found them? Varies greatly. I'm I'm very lucky in that I've heard a lot of the stories from older tellers. Sadly, most of those tellers have passed on now. So I feel that I'm following in their footsteps and I'm working on their stories and retelling the stories. I have a big thing about remembering the people who told me the stories. Mm -hmm. If I find a story, a literary text, you know, or a collection, a collected story, you have to make it your own. I always describe it as going into a shoe shop and buying a new pair of shoes and taking off your old trainers and the new shoes are um, stiff and hard and you have to walk them in. So I like to walk in a story. I like to work on it, work it up, practice it and that sort of thing. I'll only tell it if I like it. You know, I, when I was doing all for the Dead Man's Penny, I needed a traditional tale to fit in with a constructed story. And I picked one out, a Romanian tale, but I didn't really like it. And I tried it out a couple of times. It just didn't fit at all. And then I took a whole shelf full of books with me to a writing retreat. And the story literally, I mean literally, fell up on, on the page, The Queen of the Lonely Isle. I thought, that's it. That's the story I need. So sometimes it's luck. And sometimes a story just grabs you and won't let you go and is working away in your head. At the minute I'm on doing a creative process, I'm creating a new piece and there's a composer who's going to compose classical music or music to go with it. And then a young PhD student, Tony Caparelli, is going to be playing the piano. So it's going to be a piece for piano and voice. So that's, that's quite challenging. I haven't done that before. So I'm always looking to challenge myself to try new things. That's amazing. When's, when do you think that's going to be out? It needs to be done sort of soon. It needs to be done soon. Um, yeah, the composer's waiting for me to give him the story, you know. When I did um, A Wailing on the Wind, that was a, a story about a relationship between a, a grandson and his great granny with dementia. 
um, I worked with a composer called Ian Stevens, and he, um, I came up with the story, and then we worked together on the music, and then that was played with the string quartet. So yeah, it's a process. So I need to get on with that's the next thing I need to be getting on with. Haven't got a title yet either. I love titles. <laughs> I love titles. A Wailing on the Wind was one of my titles, and All for the Dead Man's Penny was one of my titles. That's that's great names for sure, for sure. When you reflect on a story that you've been telling for a long time, what discoveries do you find in it when you reflect back on it? To me, it's like an old friend. I mean, sometimes I'll put a story away and not think about it for ages now. It'll just pop up to the front of my head saying, tell me, tell me. Um, so I, I tend to tell shorter stories, not longer stories, simply because many of the audiences that I'm working with can't take longer stories they don't want to listen to a big long story so i'll often fit in several short stories i'm doing a thing with the grapevine in washington and you know my 30 minutes up maybe fit in three stories or four stories whereas somebody else will tell one story and it's just what i do so it's they're like old friends they're imbued with memories of people i've heard telling the story or where i've performed the story um so that's how I sort of describe them. That they're really like old friends. That's so cool. I like that. How do you feed yourself artistically? <laughs> listening, listening to a lot, listen to a lot. I mean, if one thing this pandemic has done, it's it's opened up. We've lots of more more international stuff going on, you know. So I'm listening. I had been reading a lot, but in the pandemic, that's one of the things that hit me. I just couldn't read them. Only now picking up a, a new and wonderful book, uh, Don Ryan's Strange Flowers, which is fantastic. Um, I haven't been able to get back to reading again. So reading sustains me, listen to music. I'm a big Van Morrison fan. He was 75 yesterday, so I've been listening to a lot of music as well. That sustains me, but also sharing stories with friends, talking about stories with friends as well. Do you th so your, your um, gathering that happens every sa Saturday, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've Every been doing Saturday. that. Normally, that would be in person and and live, and yeah. well, obviously live if it's in person. But you wouldn't mm -hmm. have that many people that you normally that you have now. No, the most we can fit into our room would be maybe thirty, and I have to make tea for them all. So the prospect of making tea for the eighty <laughs> odd I have on now is not filling me with pleasure. But so I mean, we have eighty people from twelve countries, and it's we have people from teenagers to eighty-seven year olds. So it's wonderful, and I'm making plans that even when we do get back to the live gig, I'll still continue to do something online because there seems to be a thirst for it. Several American storytellers have told me, you know, they don't tell stories other places, they're telling stories in my session. And a lot of really well-known storytellers just come and listen and don't particularly want to tell a story, nor would I ever pressurise them to because it's just a bit of relaxation. We have like an old man who plays the banjo mandolin, an 85-year-old, and they love him. And they love hearing, you know, John who'll get up and sing, you know, as the camera's always pointing up his nose, you yes. know. <laughs> yes. I saw that on one of the other shows that I watched. Yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was so nice. I mean, you you invited me later to tell, and it was, I, I just felt that it, it's so nice to see regular people doing what they do regularly in, in you know, in a traditional Irish way, you know. And it, no pressure. No yeah. pressure, no competition. Sometimes... Right. These storytelling online things are almost competitive. And, you know, I don't like that. Storytelling is not a competitive sport. No. Um, 
how can you compare? I mean, like we have everybody from really well-known storytellers to the wee woman down in the south that everybody loves, Kathleen, who do monologues and recitations. And I don't know if everybody could even understand what she's saying, but they love the power she puts into it. And I mean that in the most sincere way. Yeah. It's giving people a platform, people who aren't what the late Harry Scott would call pick people. So you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous, you know. And, and that is one thing I would say about storytelling in America. There are thousands of brilliant storytellers, but how many are up there on the big circuit in the sky? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm very lucky. Yes, I've been to Jonesbury. Yes, I've been to Dumpinogas. But I know fantastic and wonderful storytellers that have never been there. And, you know, it's just that's the way it is. It's a very big country. Whereas here, we, yeah. I, know, I know every storyteller that's telling in Ireland. You know, there's not that many. And it's it's lovely. We've got a community here and people support each other. And sometimes when it gets very big, it does get a bit competitive, I think. But I mean, the thing about the best, the best of the best, are lovely people. We're yeah. so lucky. We've had just some of the most fantastic storytellers over here to visit, you know. But they're treated, the people here don't know who they are. They don't know they're used to getting up to a thousand people. You know, to see, for example, Bill Harley after Cape Clear came up to the pub in Ballycastle, picked up a guitar, joined in the session. Nobody there knew he was a Grammy Award winner. Yeah. Nor did they care. Nor did they care. He was just a great guy who was good at playing music. And I think he enjoyed it as much as anything he's ever done. You know, and that's the thing. Sometimes we get so caught up in the, the whole, I don't know, fame thing. Um, but I think that's why people love coming over here. They love coming to Ireland because there isn't any sort of pressure on them. Yeah. Realness, if you will. That's what's really nice about it. I mean, I've had a series of really good interns. I mean, uh, Rochelle Dart won the JJ Renault Award last year. You know, she was my intern. She did the mentoring scheme with me. Mm -hmm. Fantastic young woman. Fantastic young storyteller. Um, Anne Harding, whom you know well. I mean, Anne was my intern here, and she's doing really well in storytelling. Isabel Hauser in Switzerland is doing really well. And which is, those people came, they stayed with me, they went out to the small gigs, the 10 people gigs, the work with people with dementia. And I think they're learning so much on the ground there. I don't have a formalized training program. They just come and they hang with me. And yeah, they may have to go and change some beds in the hostel, but they're learning an awful lot while they're doing it, you know? Yeah. Do you think folk and fairy tales can help dismantle intolerance? Well, I think folk and fairy tales, as my late friend Tony Buck would say, are subversive. Folk and fairy tales can get through keyholes, under doors, much better than hitting somebody over the head with a, a big personal tale. I think they have a great ability to touch the heart and to touch the memory in a way that other stories can't so yeah i really do believe that i can't i think they're real subversive is the word i use for them uh, yeah. you know telling a story telling somebody a story i took um uh, don't know if you've ever heard of Toop, the totally unorthodox unprecedented preacher he's a storyteller originally from guiana he's based in london and i brought him to a really posh event at hillsborough castle which is the queen's seat in ireland and they were all men in suits there and they were looking at him up and down in his brightly coloured shirt and his um, bare feet and sandals and his teeth with the colours of Guiana. And uh, he got up and told that amazing, you know that 
very common story but man's invited to dinner and he tries all these different suits and he's rejected every time he turns up at the door and finally puts on his best his best tuxedo and they say oh do come in sir and he sits down and when the soup is served he takes down his cuff and he dips it into the soup and they said you terrible man what are you doing he said well it wasn't me you invite it was my clothes so i'm feeding them first well, you should have seen these businessmen, the suits all looking down. I mean, he got them. He really got them about their attitude towards him, you know. Yeah. In a way, and I, I love that. I love the fact that stories can do that. And so everybody should have a, I love to have a stock of stories for special occasions like that, you know. <laughs> for those hoity-toities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that. What's your favorite trick to hold an audience? Hmm, trick. I don't go in for tricks very much. Well, um, what I mean. Sincerity. Um, I mean, here's me. This is who I am. This is who I am, whether I'm talking to you, whether I'm on a, on a stage with 600 people. Okay, I have to up the energy, I have to up the voice, but this is who I am. And there's just no nonsense about it. This is it. And so really... I just have to try and engage them with my voice. I have to engage them, obviously, eye-to-eye -eye contact. I'm looking around, but huge crowd. Look, how can you do that? So, no, the story is the strength. If you have a good story, it will get you through anywhere. You have to trust the story. That's what I believe. So, um, no, just engagement. I'm quite lucky when I go to America because, yes, I bit like yourself, you have a different accent. Mm -hmm. So that sort of intrigues people initially. And, um you would work with that but people seem to think that i have this brogue and i'm going what in ireland the, the accent changes every 10 miles and for heaven's sake as i always say to people do not try and do an irish accent in the story because it will feel miserable you know i'm me whether i'm telling a story from england ireland scotland wales wherever this is how i talk a character might sometimes i don't do it take a different uh, voice but I just engage them as being me, being me. My interns all hide under duvets if they hear somebody putting on what I consider a phony accent. They all go, no, 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 don't do that. Yeah, Rachel Ann, she, she sometimes uh, gets on my case. She'd do that. She'd do that because, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that, I don't know, sometimes it's just it's just not genuine. You know, you, I don't mean you. I don't know what you do, but in terms of that, but um I just say, just be yourself, you know, because what is it? I mean, I've been introduced. Here's a little lady who's going to bring you a, a trip of the old Emerald Isle. And you've gone, oh, please stop doing that. Why are you doing that? Why are you talking like that? I don't talk like that, you know. And again, you can hear a difference between a Belfast accent, a Derry accent, a Dublin accent, a Cork accent. There's no such thing as an Irish accent. We were listening to a wonderful story just at lunchtime there of Connie Regan Blake. That beautiful accent of hers. Well, that is so different then from hearing somebody from uh, Long Island yeah. or Chicago. Yeah. And so why would I ever say that's an American accent? It's just not. It's just not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so true. You know, don't tell an Irish story in an Irish accent because when you tell grim stories, you don't go, and then Hansel and Gretel, they made their way. Chinese story. Imagine doing a Chinese story. <laughs> I know, right? It's racist. It's actually racist to do that. And I just don't do it, you know. And yeah. I tell everybody whether I'm comfortable or not with it. I just tell everybody, please don't do it. Just don't do it. I mean, I, I remember a person years and years ago, not on the scene now, 
and every time she told an Irish story, she told in her bare feet because obviously we can't afford we can't afford shoes and socks with the well, with the pigs in the kitchen and all that. You know what I mean? <laughs> we just watched a brilliant film the other night, recommended to any of your listeners, The Matchmaker, which is about an American as an old film, an American senator who sends his girl Friday over to Ireland to try and find his Irish roots. And it is so funny. It is very funny. Um, I recommend that to people. It's the whole stage Irish thing, you know. Yeah, that's fun. I'll, I'll definitely. It being election that. time and all that, it's quite a good film to watch. It was about a senator who was up for election. It's quite funny. And what what was that one? The Matchmaker. Oh, same same movie. Okay, sorry, I got a bit of delay going on here, so I, I didn't quite catch that. Do you get nervous when you perform? Sometimes, yeah. Um, you know, if it's a, if it's a big thing. Um, the most nervous and I've written about this uh, when I was asked, I did the commission for the festival at the edge and that's what we did, all the dead man's penny all for the dead man's penny was commissioned for that and when you're performing this piece for the first time to an audience of probably 350 people who are all storytelling aficionados, I just wish the ground would open up and swallow me because, and here's the thing and it'll, some people will find this a bit weird I wrote it, right? But I don't learn things off by heart. I'm not an actor. I can't learn things off by heart. I I am a really stream of consciousness speaker. Things will come in left field. I put extra bits in. But there I was with poor Kieran, my fiddle player, and he was waiting for me to give him the cues. And I was thinking, if I mess up here, he's messed up. You know, it's no pressure. So that was one of that was one of the most excruciating times of my life. Once I'd done it once or twice, we've now done it, I don't know, countless times. It's better, but so if anybody says to me, "Oh, you never get nervous," yes, I think people are lying if they say they never get nervous. Yeah. You need that bit of adrenaline. You need that buzz. I was being filmed last week <laughs> for the one show, a BBC TV program. It's on every night, and um, of course I was nervous getting filmed. When I got there, the mist was down, and we couldn't see him. It was a ghost story anyway, and I was telling the story. But nervous I am now because when that comes on, when I got back into my car, my hair was plastered to my head and I'm going to be on national TV looking like a complete wreck. So I don't intend to watch that at all. Somebody else can watch it, but I'm watching it. It's terrible. So yes, I get nervous in answer to your question. Oh, that's funny. That is funny. So do you find it um, getting up in front of, you know, like Jonesboro, for example, the big audiences, does that bother you at all? Well, the first time you go there, yeah. Well, I've only performed um, as a feature teller. There was a big embassy there. Um, there's a buzz going on, but no, not particularly. I know what I'm going to tell, and I know it's the easiest audience because they're there, and yeah. they're there because they want you to do well. They don't want somebody to get up there and fail, so you know they're with you. Whereas if you're sitting in some wee hall down the country where somebody's forced their friends out to hear this to raise money for something, well, you know, that's a tougher crowd. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's always a bit of a buzz, you know, um, adrenaline going, but no, I don't really get scared. No, not really. That's excellent. Taffy Thomas had a similar experience um, because he, you know, the same as you, probably the same as me, you know, like we do make things up as we go along. And he was doing um, the, the proms and they, he'd had this commission piece written and and they were like well we have to rehearse it and Taff is like well I'm just going to get up and tell the story and they're like well no because you have to make sure that we know our cues because our musical parts go at certain places and Taff is like what? I know I know see I change stuff okay now Kieran's a really good musician so he can adapt now but I mean it is 
been tied to something. And then there's other people who, who memorize their stories and their word perfect. But I'm sorry, wrong storyteller here. I don't do that. I don't yeah, do that. I, can't do I remember that. Billy Tear. I used to work with Billy Tear. He and I went to Jonesford together. We used to work together as Weir and Tear. And then it became a little worn and torn. But anyway, <laughs> I, like I've seen Billy up in the middle of a session in Belfast. And, you know, sirens go off. Maybe a bomb scare. This is during the troubles. And Billy would just throw in the middle of the story. You'll hear a police going past and say, they won't sell much ice cream going at that speed. You know, which relieved the whole situation, made people smile instead of tense up. And sure, Jones were my best question. And my best thing about that, we went on, I think it was Ed Steinder, and ladies and gentlemen, Liz Weir and Billy Tear. And I'm up there on the stage and I'm looking behind me and he's not coming. And I'm going, what do you mean he's not coming? Where is he? And the crowd's all cheering. And the next thing he arrives on stage, he's got my handbag, my purse, and he's starting going through it on the stage. And I'm going, please. And he brings out a camera. And he says, remember, ladies and gentlemen, no audio recording, no video recording. But this doesn't mean I can't take pictures of you. Click, click, click. Of course, they were all up there. He had them in the palm of his hand. Whereas old Lizzie know me at tears. I believe he's doing that to me. Which and people say, we love your act. And I'm going, it's not an act. That's just the way he is all the time. <laughs> so I have so many happy memories, Simon, from, from Jonesboro. So many. I mean, Dougie Thompson and I bonded in 1996 there. And she's like my, my Lakota sister. Um, so there's a really good community of people. Genuine, genuine, great people. Yeah, she's an amazing person. She really is. If you, this is this is a bit of a downer, this one. But if you could meet a storyteller, living or dead, who you have not already met, who would it be, and what would you talk about? Oh dear, oh dear, met an awful lot of my heroes, I must say. Um, oh dear, that is a very difficult one. Because, well, who would you like to see again then, if they've passed away? Ah, uh, Alice Kane. Yeah. Alice Kane was from Toronto. She was originally from Northern Ireland. She became children's librarian for Toronto. I got to meet her when she was in her 90s. Alice Kane, um, other ones, I mean, Miss um, Catherine Tucker Wyndham. I was very lucky my last time in Jonesboro to see her being interviewed by Gay Juicy. I remember sitting there thinking, I'm not going to see you again. And I never got to see her again, you know, but oh, one of my favorite. Again, no nonsense. You know, and I know in America. Like the introductions can take up half your time. You know, you're going, please just stop and let me get up and tell a story. Whereas she just had a, you know, Catherine Tucker Wyndham, Selma, Alabama. No nonsense. She wouldn't have people flim flamming. And I love that. That's why I was very careful in doing these intros for Tempanogos to try and keep them brief and keep them going, you know. So, yeah, those are two people, two women that I just adored. John Campbell was a, a dear friend who performed at Jonesboro, storyteller from Northern Ireland. and. He, I picked him up one morning at five o'clock and drove to Baltimore to go to the Cape Care Festival. I think it was seven hours driving and he never drew breath the whole journey. Best person to share a journey with. Interesting, chatty, never repeated himself. I would say yes and no occasionally. Fantastic. So yeah, I've been very privileged. I met some Eileen Caldwell, wonderful old lady. Fantastic librarians, yeah. But I love the young guys. I like I like some of the young storytellers that I meet. I mean, kids at school and stuff that aren't calling themselves storytellers, but yeah. I like to listen to them as well. Yeah, I did a gig. This was like a few years ago, and this one kid, he came up to me afterwards, and he started telling me this story, and I kind of remembered it, kind of recognised it, but then he 
he completely changed it. It was something that he must have heard or read somewhere, but he put this whole middle section in that was completely his own because it was just a little bit too surreal and, and bizarre. And then he brought it all back together. And I was just like, that is so good. And, you know, I asked him, you know, where'd you, Oh, it's just a folk tale. And I went to the teachers afterwards and I said, this kid told this story and he's like, he probably made a good chunk of it up because <laughs> hmm. that's, that's what he does. And I was like, well, make sure he keeps doing that. Cause that's, yeah. it's incredible when you see kids with that talent, it's just, yeah, you, need, you need to nurture it, not stop it, you know? Yeah. And what I love is when you get kids that, people don't have any expectations of them. If you have low expectations, people will come down to your low expectations, whereas if you have high expectations, people will rise to it, you know? And um, I was working with a really tough class in Donegal, and we created a really good ghost story. I mean, they did it. And I, I read it out to the staff in the staff room who were quite dismissive. They didn't do that. And I went, yeah, they did. And sometimes we underestimate people. And I think that's wrong. I think storytelling gives sometimes gives kids an opportunity to blossom who might not otherwise blossom, you know? Yeah. It's not all about reading and writing. It's about the oral tradition, which, again, a lot of our kids excel at. You know? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think it gives them the opportunity to be heard as well. You know, I've said this before. It's, it's you know, you'll get these kids who are... They're, they're the kids that are quiet. They're the kids who have troubles often, or they're the wallflowers. They're just embarrassed about themselves for whatever reason, usually like for silly reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but these kids, you know, sometimes it's the first time they've active been, actively been listened to, yeah. you know, because the parents are like, do your homework. The teachers are like, do this, do that. And they never get a chance to express themselves. And when you give Claire them a Murphy tells that story. Claire Murphy's telling the story on the Cape Cure Festival this coming weekend. No one but the child who's ordering food. And the parent completely contradicts the child. And the waitress brings the child exactly what the child asked for. And the child says to her parent, you see, you know, she knows I'm here. You know, sometimes oh. kids are invisible. You know, sometimes kids are invisible. Claire yeah. does a beautiful version of that story. I recommend it to people on the capecarestorytelling.com page this weekend. Um, I, I, I think we want to bring out the people that are invisible, but also within our society, we have invisible people. Those people I worked with who'd been in special care all their lives, nobody ever asked them had they any stories. Nobody ever showed any interest in their stories. I have a lovely story about that. This woman used to bring me poems every week handwritten I said it's brilliant and my ego was getting bigger and bigger you know storyteller discovers new hidden talent I thought did you write these yourself Kathleen mm -hmm. every week mm -hmm. then she brought me I wandered lonely as a cloud that looked high <laughs> I said did you write this yourself and she had she'd been writing them out by hand you see yeah. she had been writing them. but at the very end of all this she did me a poem that she wrote herself about Father Christmas giving the children nice parents which I thought was telling. Um, so, you know, sometimes it takes a long while, but the story will eventually come out. Their own creative process will, will come through. Yeah. I think that's why we, you know, often emulate the people that we love, you know. So maybe that was a, that was a poet that she really liked and she wanted mm -hmm. to emulate that mm -hmm. until she found her own voice and yeah. felt confident enough to share that. And I think that's true with storytellers. Most people, when they start storytelling, they've met one person that they really like their style. And sometimes when they start to tell, they actually tell like them. I mean, Billy Tear would tell you that Robin Williamson was his, you know, inspiration, the crane bag and all those wonderful 
And then when he first started to tell, he actually almost sounded like him. And then you, you find your own voice and you go into your own voice. And I mean, a lot of the, the people that I like, Sheila Quigley, um, people who are quiet are storytellers. Alice Kane was a quiet storyteller. Yeah, that's it suited me. It suited my style. I'm not high on I remember National Storytelling Conference one year in San Diego and everybody was there. Um, Ed had his banjo and Diane had her stick and shaky things and Ethel Tech were there. And I'm going, oh Lord, it's just me. And I just went out and just told the story. And it's just, it's just what I do. I can't do other stuff. This is what I do. And in Israel once, these students were all learning to be storytellers and they were all dressing up. And this young woman whose dress is a bee, which I find bizarre, she said to me, I do not understand. And I said, what do you understand? She said, you just tell stories. And I said, mm -hmm. pretty much that's what I do. That's who I am. That's what I do. But for her, she thought you had to dress up. You had to be this. You had to be that. No, I just, I tell stories. That's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a joke over here about, storytellers of a certain age would always wear you know the guys would all wear vests waistcoats right and um and then one year somebody wore a scarf the one of the women wore a scarf and then everybody started wearing scarves it was kind of like oh we can dress like that can we now <laughs> and they, they used to be, there was a great vogue for floaty things people wore lots of floaty things in fact i wore lots of floaty things myself uh -huh. so uh, i've changed that a bit now yeah, you go through styles. You know, we do, style. we do. I started off kind right. of like well, Bill Harley is the only one that hasn't changed style. He's always done jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> Bill Lepp has never changed styles. Well, Bill Lepp has never changed styles, you know. But yeah. here's the thing. I believe, and I say to my younger storytellers, when you're going out to do a performance, it's, well, say if I've been out through the day and I'm going out at night, I always change into something else. I think you ought to your audience to look. I don't mean just my team point of view. I mean to look the part, you know. Yeah, yeah. What if you're going on stage and a big? You need to have something that. I mean, kids will say to me, "Why do you wear all that jewelry?" What it focuses the eye in a way. You know what I mean? So, I do think we have to look reasonably smart as storytellers. I believe that. That's just me. I like clothes. Hey? Yeah, I'm. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. You like hats, don't you? I do. <laughs> You caught me no, out. I do. <laughs> What's your favourite breakfast, and where would your favourite breakfast be eaten? Favourite place? Yes, sir. There's a wonderful wee place in Boulder, Colorado. It does a really nice, and the name's not going to come to me now. Uh, in Boulder, a wonderful breakfast place. But you know, there's a nice wee breakfast place there on the outskirts of, of the Pancake House. Jonesboro, it's quite good for breakfast as well. So now I eat many breakfasts, many places. This morning I was in a hotel. I had the full Irish breakfast, you know, the sausages, the bacon, white pudding, black pudding, potato bread, soda bread, cholesterol special, a heart attack on <laughs> but, um, No, I, I like I like I like porridge and porridge and fruit. So no, I'm I'm happy. I eat breakfast many places, many, many places. Yeah. That's funny, yeah. I remember. I, I'm a vegetarian now, but I I did used to like the full, the full British breakfast, Irish breakfast. What yeah. I mean, I think the difference between an English breakfast and an Irish breakfast is that the Irish breakfast has soda bread. <laughs> yeah, soda bread and potato bread. But um, great veggie fry. You can get a very good veggie fry here. You get yeah. a very good vegetarian fry. But it just um, yeah. Food, I think, food and stories go together. 
uh, the hotel I was in last night, Valley Gallery Castle, last year I did a series called Tasty Tales and Tunes with a musician and storyteller called Colin Irwin. And so people came and they, they had their evening of um, locally sourced food and stories and music, and it was lovely. So I was just thinking about that. Uh, my friend Marilla McPhee and her husband were over from San Diego and they came, and also my Icelandic storyteller, Herlifer Stephenson, he and his wife came to a session there. So it was great to be able to bring friends for lovely food and then some stories and some music as well. Those Icelandic <laughs> stories are really dark. Well, I mean, people think that be, Grimm is dark, but the Icelandic ones, holy crap. Again, I'll recommend that. Herlifer is on at Cape Clear this coming weekend, and uh, they've just put one taster up on the on the Facebook page, but he's a great storyteller. His command of English is totally brilliant for some, from a non-English speaker. His turns of phrase are so good. So I've adopted him as another new nephew. I've got nephews and nieces like Shona Lee's my niece. I've got nephews and nieces all over the place, you know. I, I want to be a nephew. <laughs> You can be a nephew, all right. You have to come and visit. I will. I will. I promise. That's one of the promises I'm, I'm actually going to keep. Um, I really do want to come over and, and, and do some of the work with you that you do with the piecework, um, yeah. especially is what I'm interested in mm -hmm. learning about. Well, I think with the way things are at the minute, what we need to do is to listen to each other's stories and see life from other people's viewpoints and not just have this blinkered viewpoint if one thing experience has taught me is you can't make assumptions about people um you have to have some tolerance built in there i mean some people are in their different camps because they know no different mm -hmm. people need to get out and see things from other people's point of view and i think stories are really good at doing that you know i mean if you listen to dan ketting's two warriors story i mean this business it's impossible to hate someone once you know their story again it's more difficult to hate them might not be impossible it's more difficult once you hear where they're coming from and, and see what they've had to put up with in their lives so tolerance is very important i think and if there's one thing i believe storytelling is good at it's promoting tolerance but that requires you to listen to other yeah. voices yeah. not just one single voice yeah it's true it's true Liz, I won't take up any more of your time because we've we've been doing this for over an hour now and I really, yeah. really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining pleasure. me. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Well, take care of yourself and Thanks very um, much. Come and uh, visit. I will, I will. As soon as we can get together, I'll 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 try and make a trip. Now maybe I'll convince my wife to come over as well. <laughs> Plenty of room here. Storytelling today for free at Bellingham and Barn. Yep. <laughs> So I right. from all of the world in here. All the very best. I'll leave the studio now. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. bye. Did you enjoy that? I hope so. I have to say I wasn't fully awake at the beginning of the interview, even though I had been up for three hours already. Liz was wonderful and took everything in her stride, of course. I cannot thank Liz enough for joining me. Thank you, Liz, a relative stranger and on the other side of the Atlantic, for making the time in her schedule for me. Look up her CDs and get one or two. She is a fabulous, fabulous storyteller. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can find my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. 
A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. He has a band called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar an episode that you enjoy to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content on my work. That's at www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. Want your name mentioned? Well, join the gang and become one of my patrons. A special thanks to Margarea Fitch. If you can't join these wonderful folks, then help me out by doing something you can do. I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find this episode, wherever you find this podcast. It won't take long, and it helps, not just me, but it helps others to find and enjoy this podcast. Again, thanks for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers, Simon. Simon out. It's just a story. Just a story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.